Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Isabel Wilkerson is the best-selling and Pulitzer Prize-winning author of The Warmth of Other Suns and most recently, Cast, The Origins of Our Discontent, which is quite frankly, required reading. It is one of those books that will redefine the way you think about everything. It will open your eyes and make transparent that which was confusing. In it, she examines the caste system that has shaped American history and the ways our lives today are still defined by these man-made hierarchies, particularly in the context of race. Today, she explains the essential difference between racism and casteism, a distinction that sheds new light on the current divisiveness in our country. She shares how the hierarchies within a caste system don't just negatively affect the subjugated groups. There are rippling effects, including very misguided policy that often impact everyone. We talk through ways we as a country can move beyond these artificial divisions. One huge step, she says, is having a deep understanding of our country's history, a history that is largely untold. We first need to know where we've actually been in order to move forward. Ignorance is no protection against the consequences of one's inaction. You must deal with what you would perhaps not want to deal with, but there it is. It's your responsibility. So all of us are kind of, I describe us as being heirs, like we've inherited this old house and no one alive built this house. And you could say that we have joint ownership of it, but some people have a higher investment in it because they have been born to the group that is dominant. And that means that the, the greater the benefits that have been accorded your group, then the higher the responsibility and moral duty that group has to help to deal with the challenges of this old house we call home, call the United States. Okay, let's get to my chat with Isabel Wilkerson. 
It is a massive honor to talk to you. So thank you so much. And congratulations on your book. It is fantastic. And I know many people have already read it, but I hope it becomes sort of required reading and the part of syllabuses across the country, because particularly now, I think the one thing that has been affirmed by this most recent election is how desperately we need this book and a deeper understanding of what is happening. And for so many of us, like we've been trying to find that that understanding that fits like a Venn diagram over our own experience. And I have to say that cast for me, I was like, oh my God, like I understand it was, it was an awakening. So thank you. I can only imagine how long it took you to write that book and put that together. Yeah, it has been years because you don't come to something this complex overnight. It really marinated after a very long time after I finished my first book, which was The Warmth of Other Suns. And that really was the genesis of this book. One led to the other. And The Warmth of the Suns was about the migration of 6 million African-Americans from the Jim Crow South to the rest of the country, which thus changed the country North and South, politics, economics, segregation, hyper-segregation in the cities, redlining and restrictive covenants, all of the things that became the ways of, of adjusting that the North used in, in response to the Great Migration. So I was writing about that. In order to do that, I really had to understand what was it that they were leaving? Why would they all leave in such force? you know, from much of the 20th century. And I discovered in the course of working on that book that they were leaving what anthropologists who had studied it described as a caste system. And so this was a world in which it was against the law for a black person and a white person to merely play checkers together in Birmingham. You could go to jail if you were caught playing checkers with a person of a different race. This is a world where in courtrooms throughout the South, there was actually a black Bible and an altogether separate white Bible to swear to tell the truth on in court. That, that the very word of God said, it meant the same sacred object could not be touched by hands of different races. And so in describing that world, and I should also add that any breach of this caste system could literally mean your life. These were matters of life and death. It was not just protocol and manners. This could mean your very life for for some breach of the caste system. And you know, the more spe spectacular extreme evidence of that would be the lynchings that actually happened every four days somewhere in the American South in the first decades of the 20th century. So this was very, very seriously enforced and policed. And it, it, as a, the more I spent time understanding it, talking with people who had lived through it, who'd survived it, it became clear that this is more than what we would think of in terms of, 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 of racism, where people just hate someone or hate a group. This was more than that. This had to do with controlling and policing of boundaries, of creating and maintaining a hierarchy in which the things that you could and could not do, all of the rights, privileges, all of the spaces that a person could be in, the kind of occupations you could hold, who could do what and who could be where, was determined by what you look like, which became the metric for identifying who belong where, meaning the metric of race. And a race is a mm -hmm. fairly new concept in, in human history. And so I realized that this was, I wasn't, racism did not seem comprehensive enough to describe what was going on there. 
And I came to the same conclusion that anthropologists had spent time in the Jim Crow South during the depths of it. I came, they came out of their studies, their deep in interrogation into the, into the South by living there and, and immersing themselves in it. They emerged from their experiences describing this as a caste system. So I began to use the word caste system in this book. People who read the book, I mean, the book did very, very well. It, did, it came out 10 years ago and it's on the bestseller list now, I mean, which is stunning. It's on the New York Times bestseller list. And people just uh, flowed with that word and they, it made sense. They, they could see the context of it and, it, and it, it, was, it felt appropriate in the ways that I was describing um, that world. And so the second book is a, is a deeper dive into that concept to see how does it really work in our country. Yeah. And, you know, as you mentioned, sort of race is this completely invented concept that has become so defining here. I was doing sort of a homework assignment with my seven-year-old on Zoom, and it was like, describe your heritage. And I was like, I don't even know what that means, you know, as a, you know, white half Jew who's, you know, clearly from Europe. But in this country, as you write, sort of Europeans came and suddenly and slipped off their heritage and slipped on this shroud of whiteness and it became a concept that didn't exist doesn't exist it's a it's an american concept and we have these block identities and obviously we talk about them a lot in the context this week when we're speaking in the election and yet it's so much more nuanced than that like we've sort of lost everything in taking up this thing that now means more to most people than democracy. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's this idea that was used in the service of creating a hierarchy, which I would call a caste system, in order to build the country. And in building the country, they assigned people to roles, clearly the colonists themselves, English colonists, who arrived in Virginia in the early 17th century needed to be able to build a country out of wilderness. And so they, you know, they first took the land as we so, you know, know, so tragically took the land from the indigenous people, drove them from their land and then decimated their numbers in addition to that, and then brought in Africans to build the, the land out of wilderness. And in doing so with each passing year and decade created laws that would define, restrict and, uh, and accord privileges and rights or withdraw those privileges and, right, and rights to people based upon what they look like so that they were in doing so they were creating both a hierarchy and a new definition a new concept a new way to measure human beings which would be race which had no reason to exist before mm-hmm. people came from different parts of the world to this one space to build what would ultimately become a new world and become the United States and the, the rest of the, this hemisphere, we're talking about the United States here. And so, you know, back in the old countries of, you know, uh, if, if a person was from Ireland or they were from Poland or they were from Hungary, they would not have identified themselves by the metric of skin color because they were surrounded by people who were just like them. So in the 15th century, 16th century, there would have been no need to identify themselves on the basis of what we now call race because everyone was looking pretty much the same. They would have identified themselves in terms of the language that they spoke, the boundaries of the the nation state that they lived in, whether Poland or Hungary, whatever it might have been. But race was not the, the metric. It only had meaning when you set one group of people against another group of people and then begin drawing lines as to who is identified as what. And in doing so, that is where this hierarchy emerged because it wasn't just the neutral traits 
of what you look like. It was that there was a value, a, a portion of value assigned to that trait, which would have been neutral in the abstract, but then was given value. And so I described caste essentially as an artificial, arbitrary, graded ranking of human value in a society. And it's yeah. what even they determine standing and respect and benefit the doubt, access to resources, how you'll be treated by the authorities, assumptions of competence and intelligence and, and beauty even, through no fault of anyone's. I mean, you're born to this, you're born looking the way that you do, but these are, you know, graded rankings that are in place and that, you know, you, you're born into the society and you, you're a child, you don't recognize that any of these things have meaning and then over time you learn that they do. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. This was, I thought that this sentence, or sorry, this this short paragraph was made something click for me too, where you write, in the eyes of the European colonists and to the Africans' tragic disadvantage, they happened to bear an inadvertent birthmark over their entire bodies that should have been nothing more than a neutral variation in human appearance, but which made them stand out from the English and Irish indentured servants. The Europeans could and did escape from their masters and blend into the general white population that was hardening into a single caste. So... I mean, there you have it. It's like there there was the caste system already, this idea of hierarchy, indentured servants, and then it's replaced sort of instantly by slavery. And then the staggering thing about slavery, and I feel like there's been slow progress, but some progress in terms of people, white Americans being able to face sort of the, the foundation of this country, and then also the hundreds of years of slavery is the statistic that we will have been that African Americans as a group will have been free for as long as they have been enslaved only in the year 2,111. Right. Slavery. Staggering. Slavery lasted for so long. It lasted from 1619 to 1865. So it lasted for 246 years. So 246 years, I mean, imagine how many greats you have to add to the word grandparent to think about how, how long that lasted. 12 generations of enslavement, 12 generations of enslavement, followed by nearly 100 years of a formal Jim Crow caste system. Now, we think about Jim Crow, we think about the water fountains and the restrooms. It has that, but as we had talked before, this was about restricting and controlling and policing the boundaries of what everyone could do in that regime. And so it was far more than just the water fountains and the restrooms. So you really are talking about um, a system that lasted for formally for 246 years and then a mutation of it known as Jim Crow, which was also formally controlled. I mean, literally, people, African Americans were not permitted to vote until the 1960s. So this is relatively new, this concept 
of African Americans being enfolded into the mainstream of American life is relatively new. I mean, there it's within the lifespan of many, many older Americans alive today. And so the number that you there are two years that are significant to help put in context how long uh, slavery lasted because a lot of people say well that was a long time ago that was in the past it was a sad chapter in our country's history but slavery went on for so long is it, that it won't be until the year 2022 that the united states will have been a free and independent nation for as long as slavery lasted on this soil that's how that's mm -hmm. how long slavery lasted and then to, to your point that you mentioned before no adult will be alive at the point mm. at which African-Americans will have been free for as long as they were enslaved. You know, as you noted, that won't happen until the year 2111. So this gives a sense of just slavery itself. But I think that to truly understand how we got to where we are, we have to remember that this was followed by a continuation of, the, of a formal caste system in which, you know, until the 1960s, these restrictions and the policing of boundaries were very much a part of everyday life for, for African-Americans. Right. And why that distinction between racism and casteism is so essential because you know, and these, and people who, who cry out that they're not racist, this is driven out of a fear of being on the bottom and of holding on to the advantage of your whiteness more so than it is sort of outgroup hate, even though that's the expression of it and that's the result of it, that for many Americans, they're not actually sort of voting against their interests because to them, the only thing that matters is the preservation of their of their whiteness is something that means that they're inherently not not the bottom, right? Yeah, and I would I would add that this could be beneath the surface of the subconscious. I mean, this is not something that people would necessarily go declaring. There are many code there's there, there's code language for for a lot of this. I mean, the the idea of who is patriotic, you know, the idea mm -hmm. of going back to a time when in the past when things were presumably better, the, 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 the various things that can be said about freedom for some people and yet policing of others. So there, there's, there are lots of code, there's code language to sort of obscure what underneath really is this effort to maintain the boundaries but also to, you know, to, to, be, to exclude people who are attempting to immigrate from parts of the world that are not, that don't fit in the, the presumed fit in the dominant caste group, efforts to incarcerate and police more harshly those who are, who were from the subjugated group. So all of these are ways of, of controlling and responding to any breach of, of you know, any threat to the dominant caste. And, and, and so it's, it's some, some of this is I describe it as, you know, unconscious biases that are embedded in, in most everyone because we're all exposed to the same messaging, you know, from billboards and, you know, serial commercials to, you know, who traditionally has gotten killed first in a movie, you know, so all of these things, these the messaging, you know, we picture in our minds, you know, who is the CEO in the corner suite? And there's a person that comes to mind when who's in the cafeteria, there's a person that may come to mind. Who is in the janitorial service? There's a person that comes to mind. So there are roles that, that um, have been assigned for so long 
that we grow accustomed to expecting certain people to be certain places. So this, this is all part of the subconscious messaging, the programming that we've all, we've all been exposed to without any action on our part. And I wanna say also that one difference between casteism, what, what could be called casteism and what would be called racism is that racism is, is, is prejudice, is the prejudice, it's a kind of, it's what it's commonly thought of as hate, it's commonly thought of as open, active hostility against a group, open, admitted hostility against a particular group. That's the, sort of the classical racism of our forefathers era, but that's not really what is, you know, it's, it's not what people would describe anymore. It's not really seen as proper to even admit to such things. And so it's sort of morphed in and mutated into basically an investment in, and an upholding of the hierarchy as it has been known, keeping everyone in a fixed place, policing those boundaries. And we've seen many, many videos recently of people in the dom what I call the dominant caste, which would be, you know, people who were, who look like or are descended from those who created the caste system in the first place, they will intrude upon the everyday lives of people who happen to be in the subjugated groups, historically subjugated groups. So we've seen these videos where someone will come and, and you know, they will call the police on two men, two African-American men, for example, at a Starbucks waiting for a friend. I mean, that, that you know, that happened in Philadelphia. There have been videos that show, in one case, a, a woman, I should say, a, a businessman, a black businessman was trying to just get home from work and he was open opening the, the door to the lobby of his condo building and a woman blocked his path from getting into this, his own condo building. And she wasn't responding out of fear. She actually followed him all the way to the elevator, followed him up the elevator to the floor that his apartment was on and checked to see, to assure herself that he actually lived in the building and asking him all along, where do you live? Do you live here? This is only for residents. I mean, she said this the whole time. That was the idea of policing the boundaries and responding to what she felt was a breach of the, of the, of the protocols, breach of the boundaries. And I mean, of course, you know, the, people have a right to be able to, to watch their surroundings, but in this case, the man was, you know, was a businessman in a suit and was had the key to his, it was a bizarre thing to happen. But we've seen many, many examples of this. And of course, the most extreme ones are cases where the authorities with those same assumptions will, you know, take the lives of, or self-appointed vigilantes will take the lives of, of unarmed citizens. I mean, that's happened to a man named Ahmad Aubrey when he was merely jogging in a neighborhood and these self-appointed vigilantes, you know, drove up in a truck, blocked him and then, and then shot him. I mean, it's just stunning. He was viewed as not, it wasn't appropriate. He was out of his place. He was in the wrong neighborhood jogging and, and that's, he lost his life over that. And this is this year. Yeah. So these are examples of what I would call caste at work, caste boundaries, caste assumptions, caste policing, you know, can occur even in the current day. It's like the afterlife, yeah. afterlife, of, afterlife of the original hierarchies. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. Toomey has a soft side. Discover their new Acer bag collection in its pillowy pleats, satin finish, and crescent shape. Acer is the bag to carry for your 9 to 5 and the 5 to 9 plans that follow. Versatility, after all, is Toomey's signature. Shop the full Acer collection on Toomey.com or at a Toomey store near you. Okay, 
let's get back to the conversation. You know, you mentioned in the context of racism, hate, and what does seem sort of as the the prevailing emotion of casteism is fear, right? This idea, and you sort of talk about it as this existential anxiety and threat. You write the political scientists have given this malaise of insecurities a name, dominant group status threat, which is this idea that they will again, lose everything, that their their identity is under threat, that, and certainly you can, you can look at people who are, you know, on the poverty line in this country and say that there's more that they have in common than, than they don't, right? And the deaths of despair predominantly affecting poor white people. And yet, they're the ones who would, who would benefit the most from, you know, healthcare for all and all of these, these social programs. And yet, you write that, while we like to say that they're voting against their best interests, they're voting to preserve their only primary interest, which is to preserve that hegemony, that that rank, that idea that their that their whiteness has value. Do you believe that we'll get to a place? I was I was listening to this sort of spiritual teacher talk about equity and and anticipation of this election, and she was saying how equity is. So for there are those of us who are fighting for it, those of us who don't want it, but that it is an alien, will be an alien alien feeling to, for all of us. That we've never experienced it truly or globally. Do you think that we're going to get there? I mean, it feels like eventually, yes, but how painful and violent do you think it will need to become? Well, my hope is that through the work that I've done here and the work of many others who've been unpacking this and digging deep, that one of my goals is to alert us all to the ways that this these hierarchies, this caste system hurts everyone. We're, it's very clear the ways that it harms and devastates people who are the targets of the caste system. And we've seen in the videos, for example, of George Floyd, which you know, which which you know, was a catalyst for so much response, you know, over the summer, which was inspiring to see people with a shared sense of outrage over what had happened to him. But with the passage of time, if you're not in a group that's being targeted by this, it can kind of it can kind of like revert back to a, a general sense of neutrality on these things. So the goal, one of the goals, is to remind ourselves how we are as a society harmed by the inequities that may seem to be trained primarily on one group, but actually then spread and leach out beyond the, the boundaries of that. See, one of the things that, that this book is attempting to do is to show how it affects everyone in ways that we might not think about it. So one example is that because things that happen to people in the subordinated group are viewed as singular to them, not part of the norm of society, not viewed as part of the mainstream, something that people can distance themselves, they don't have to think about that can affect policy that can ultimately end up hurting everybody. And so, of course, healthcare is one of them, that one of the things that, that comes to mind. But I make reference here about the ways that people, that the country responded to the crack cocaine epidemic of the mm-hmm. 1990s. That was viewed as a, as a, as a Black problem, it was viewed, although it was not, but it was also viewed as a problem of of crime, a criminal justice issue. It was viewed as, as a criminal issue. And so people who were who had substance addiction to that particular substance were viewed as criminals. 
And because of that, there was no response. There was no health response. It wasn't viewed as a public health emergency. There was no framework or infrastructure built to, in, in recognition of this being a human problem. And so as a result of that, there was no, there was nothing in place when we had the current era where we have the opioid crisis, which is now being viewed as as it should be as a human issue, a human crisis, a crisis of substance abuse, a medical and public health issue. But there was not, it could creep up because there was no prevailing infrastructure to deal mm -hmm. with the magnitude of this because we had had the chance to do that, but ignored it because the group of people who were suffering at that time were from the subordinated group and their issues were not viewed as germane to the general population. And so those are, that's one way that, you know, now there's tremendous, tremendous, you know, human toll that this has taken. One other thing I would add to that is that because of the assumptions about people who are black and brown, the medical assumptions, the medical field is no different from other parts of our culture. And that, that meant many medical people, people in the medical field can be susceptible to unconscious bias. And so these unconscious biases have leached into uh, medicine and there's this assumption, a stereotype, it's, it's a flawed one, it's, it's incorrect, it's wrong. But it's assumption that black and brown people do not experience pain at the same threshold that their white counterparts do so that black people get less in the way of, of pain medication, even when they, there exam, there's examples in, uh, of, of people who have stage four cancer who, is, who are not getting the pain medications that, that their white counterparts would get merely because of these assumptions of that they don't experience pain at the same level, completely false, completely wrong, no truth to that. And the, the corresponding other piece of that story is that on the other hand, the assumptions about white people being totally different from black people mean, you know, in terms of their threshold for pain, meant that, the, that they were often over-medicated for pain. And that is one of the ways that the opioid crisis began to leach into a population. You know, oddly, in this case, African-Americans were not you know, part of that in the same way because they were being denied pain medication at much higher rates. Mm -hmm. So it's an interesting, you know, interconnectedness of these biases that can, in ways that we may not otherwise see, actually harm a group, harm both groups. I mean, everyone is harmed in that. And then one other thing I was going to mention is that, you know, in the course of working on this book, you know, I, I turned to all kinds of places for uh, ways to unpack this, all kinds of metaphors. I make mention of the matrix, <laughs> all kinds of things. <laughs> and I would have I happen to be watching this YouTube video of these people in Britain being interviewed. They were being interviewed and sort of man and woman on the street. And the journalist who was going around interviewing them was asking them, can you guess how much this particular thing costs? in the United States. Like how much do Americans have to pay for this particular procedure in, in medicine? Like what do they have to pay? And so the Londoners who were being interviewed were just wildly off base with the estimates for how much things cost you know, whether it was to, you know, get a, to, you know, to reset a bone or whatever it might've been. And one woman, they, she was asked, you know, how much do you think it costs to have a baby, to have a C-section? And she 
she guessed wildly off. I mean, maybe she said, you know, $500 or something, if that. And then when they told her it was closer to five or $6,000, she said, to have a baby? They have to pay that much to have a baby? She couldn't believe it. She said, that's nuts. And then another man was asked, how much do you think it costs to, for Americans to, to get from, you know, to, to get an ambulance to take them from their home to the hospital when they have to go to the hospital for an emergency? And he said, they charge for that? There's a charge yeah. that he had the hardest time accepting that. And so this is just a reminder that we, as innovative as a country as, as we are, and as, you know, in the forefront of so much of technology and information and media and, you know, Hollywood, all the things that, that we are in the forefront of, there are many, many ways in which sort of basic life experiences we lag our Western counterparts, and this is one of them. And yeah. you know, we we don't realize how much we, wh how much you know, how different we actually are, how much harder life actually is, because we're not really looking at how other places might might do it. We're one of the few few Western, we're the only Western nation, large Western nation that has no you know a universal health care for for its citizens. And this is not a political statement I'm making, it's just a fact, it's just a fact. And it just gives an, a window into, one of the reasons is that we feel less of a sense of comedy, less of a sense of, of community with people who we've been told are different from us, people who we, who we are told are less worthy, people who we, who we have been, uh, we've absorbed the messaging and the stereotypes and assumptions about entire groups. And we, we, have, we have, because of these divisions, remember that for the vast majority of time that there's been a United States into the 1960s and 70s, you know, black people and white people have been segregated by law. So, we, so there was not the opportunity to really get to know each other, to have a, a sense of a stake in the lives of, of other people, a sense of shared, you know, sh shared involvement, you know, shared values and shared future that you, you're almost operating on two different tracks. And so because of that, there's not the sense that, that what, what makes it better for all people would make it better for us, make it better for other people. And there's not this sense of being in it together. And, and, and it shows up in our policies. Yeah, and it shows up in the way that we, we continue as a country to revere sort of this foundational stories that are, and these, these generals, these leaders, when it's predicated on, as you write, inconceivable violence, you write, we like to think of our country as being far beyond the guillotines of medieval Europe or the reign of the Huns. And yet it was here. The Native Americans were occasionally skinned and made into bridal reins, wrote the scholar Charles Mills. Andrew Jackson, the U.S. president who oversaw the forced removal of indigenous people from their ancestral homelands during the Trail of Tears, used bridal reins of indigenous flesh when he went horseback riding. And it was here that into the 20th century, African-Americans were burned alive at the stake. And, you know, you, you obviously, it's, it's so alarming and clear in reading your book that, that, you know, the Nazi party looked to America to inform its treatment, its genocide, it's, you know, the treatment of Jews, and yet we don't really talk about that. And then you look at what they've done, which is sort of do the opposite, which is there's no 
you know, Hitler Museum. There's no place to go and venerate his what he did. There's only a place to go and commune with victims and understand the story of that country from the place of deep, deep, profound remorse. And here, you know, as you write about extensively, we have Confederate flags still. And there are things that are not only allowed, but celebrated or contested, you know, the removal of Confederate statues. It's like, how are we here? I mean, it is so depressing. And do you think it seems like we need just this full reckoning, a full, a full excavation of our souls before we can move forward? Otherwise, it's, it's almost it feels almost like a rubber band. And then you write, too, about 2042 as that looms in so many people's minds. And it's terrifying to think about how we move forward, even how we move forward in this next month yeah. without being able to properly metabolize where we've come from. Well, in approaching this work, I basically perceived myself to be like the building inspector of this old <laughs> house we call America. And, you know, I, I have, a, there's a metaphor in there about the old house. And, you know, when you old, own an old house, you know that the work is never done. There's always something that has yet to be addressed. You don't expect the work to be done. It's an ongoing effort when you have an old house. And you don't want to go into that basement, you know, after rain. You don't want to have to confront whatever it is that you are going to have to deal with. You just don't want to have to think about that. You would prefer not to have to look at what you would rather not see. And yet, if you don't go into that basement, if you do not look and address whatever is wrong with that building, you're going to have to deal with the consequences anyway. I mean, ignorance is no protection against the consequences of one's inaction. You must deal with what you would perhaps not want to deal with, but there it is. It's your responsibility. Mm -hmm. So all of us are kind of, I describe us as being heirs, like we've inherited this old house and no one alive built this house. And you could say that we have joint ownership of it, but some people have a higher investment in it because they have been born to the group that is dominant. And that means that the, the greater the benefits that have been accorded your group, then the higher the responsibility and moral duty that group has to help to deal with the challenges of this old house we call home call the United States. And, and so that, that's how I describe it, because that way it, it takes it out of the sense of, you know, of despair and emotion. And you just roll up your sleeves and you've got to get in there and deal with it. I mean, we're describing, I'm describing it as an infrastructure. It is a, it's like a building. This is the infrastructure of our divisions. This is beneath you know, what we think we see when we look at people and look at what, what's happening around us to try to understand. And it's, it's like almost like holding the country's x-ray up to the light. And once you can see the x-ray and you can see what is the source of the problem, then and then and only then, I, can, you, can I think you, do I think that you can actually begin to uh, address them? I mean, you can't fix what you can't see. You know, you can't you know, can't uh, repair what you haven't named and you can't diagnose what you have not yet identified. So I think that that's the whole point of this and it helps you to, to have uh, a way of recognizing what we're dealing with because, you know, what we have been doing up until now clearly has not been working. We are not yeah. dealing with whatever is underneath all of this because it's persisted for too long. And we also realize that the laws are not sufficient. The laws are important, but they're not sufficient. 
you know, the civil rights legislation of the 1960s, and I should emphasize that the civil rights legislation in 1964, passed with a specific inclusion that uh, that also spoke to and protected the rights of women to take on positions to be able to protect them against uh, workplace discrimination, to be able to to move into fields that they otherwise had not been permitted to. So it was a more expansive civil rights legislation than people uh, are often aware of, and that means that we, you know, that 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 those the laws are there. And it's important to have the laws there, but what we have seen in recent years and decades, you know, are an indication that that is not sufficient. And I think that it's a, res- it's a responsibility of all of us. It's really important that all of us learn the history. I mean, one of the things is that when <laughs> The Warmth of the Suns came out, I heard the same thing over and over and over from many, many readers, no matter what their background. They would say to me time and time again, I had no idea. I had no idea this happened in this country. I had no idea that this, this happened, say, in their state, wherever they might have been. I had no idea that this happened within my lifetime for people who were older who happened to overlap with that. They said they had no idea. And not having an idea has consequences. I mean, it has consequences in how people vote. It has com- consequences in who people hire, who they will grant mortgages to. It has consequences throughout our society. And that's the reason why I think that you know, I make mention of the Germans, what brought me to the Germans to begin with was looking at how they had wrestled with their history. You know, what had they done in the years after the war? And it turned out, as you, as you alluded to just before, that there are no memorials at all to the Nazis. All of the monuments are to those who suffered under that regime. And the places that the Nazis had used have been converted into places of learning. They have been turned into places where people can learn the history, sit with the history, and and obviously as a way to make sure that this never happened again. In addition, in the middle of Berlin, you know, a major world city, there's this massive, massive structure right in the centers of the of the of the city that is devoted to, as it should be, to the, those who perished in the Holocaust and the interesting thing about it, among many other things, but one interesting thing about it is that there is no signage. There's no signage to say what this is, who it's devoted to. There is no, there are no exhibits, you know, inside it. It's actually ex- outdoors, but there are no exhibits that indicate, you know, panels that describe what it is that happened. And one of the reasons is because it's not necessary because people know the history. They all mm-hmm. learn the history from a very young age as soon as they're able to begin to comprehend some of this. And you know, graduate from uh, secondary school without knowing the history. And yet in our country, there are many, many people, this is not, we're not on the same page about our history in this country. So that means that if you don't know the history, if you don't know where you've been, that it's hard to know what, how you got to where you are and how you can move forward. You know, I describe us as Americans are like people who walked into a movie theater right in the middle of the movie. And so we see, you know, a bus, that's chasing a car, that's chasing a motorcycle. And, you know, you're looking at it, you don't know, you walked in the middle of the theater in the middle of this movie and you don't know why the bus is chasing the car that's chasing the motorcycle. (laughs) And you can watch it to the end of the film. You can watch it to the very end of the movie and still not be able to really understand like, well, what is it that happened? And so, you know, you have to go back and start again and watch the movie from the beginning and then you can, then it starts to make sense. Well, that's what, that's what, you know, we as Americans have to do. I mean, and that's really what history is. History is what happened in the movie before you joined it. Like what happened in the movie 
before you joined it. And so we don't know like what we're looking at. We don't under, we may not understand it because we came into the movie at a certain point and we didn't catch the first half. And that's what this is. And that's a, my first goal here is within the sphere in which I move about is to present for all of us a way of understanding how we got to where we are. It's the way of getting on the same page. It's a way of seeing what happened in the movie before we joined it. And it's a way to under, better understand what we're looking at. And so much, and, and on Twitter, you can just see people saying, you know, I, once I read it, you know, so many things made sense. It's like it pulled, it pulled together all these pieces that were not making sense before then. And so it, it's just captivated a lot of people. And I think that suddenly all of these incongruous things that don't make sense. You know, why would people be voting against their own interests? Well, actually, they are voting, they are voting for their interests. It's quite presumptuous to say to people, you're, you're voting against your own interests when they know what it is that they want. And, <laughs> and I, I, you know, in, in this, in the history that I'm presenting here, you, you have a better understanding of the fact that, yes, they are there are voting their own interests. I mean, people may, some people may not agree uh, with what they're doing, but they're voting their own interests. People, people take very seriously what they think is best for them and for their families. And in this particular case, maintaining the, the structure of, of the country as it had been in the past is, is in their best interest or perceived to be. Yeah, no, certainly. And I think it goes back to that the idea of fear and that somehow their safety and security delivered in that premise. And I think that it's our responsibility as Americans, and and this will probably need to be delivered through policy in part, but it's also an existential, existential shift is to ideally, you know, as you mentioned, like we love to talk about the primacy of America and how amazing we are. And we're not like we are not number one in almost any measure globally. And if we can start to create structures of safety and security for people so that they feel held, then maybe they can let go of this threat mentality or this idea of scarcity or that they're doomed. Because I really think that that's the clinging nature of it. It is, and certainly has been driven by Trump among men. He's exquisite at driving people's fear and stirring up paranoia, et cetera. And we have to sort of get the conscience of the country back in terms of there, there have to be better ways. And yes, of course, education, but we're not in any position in this country to educate people until we redo our priorities and reinvest. Hi. Yeah. <laughs> It's a lot. It's a lot. You know, I think that it can feel like it's overwhelming, you know, where to even start. But I, I do think that, you know, when you get some new device, you know, you, the first thing you're supposed to do is look at the instructions, you know, look, open the instruction manual and, you know, see what it is that this is and what is that and what, what goes where. And that's what history is as well. I mean, history is giving you kind of a blueprint that, of what you have inherited. That's why I get back to the house. I mean, we, We've inherited this old house. It has a lot of a lot of problems, structural problems, and those those things will not be fixed unless we really understand what the problems are. Doesn't mean that they cannot be fixed, but it means that it's not going to get fixed if we don't know what the problems are. If we don't know how this happened, and we don't know what goes where, if we don't know what it is that we're looking at, we can't even begin to hope to fix something. And that's why I think that 
at least the very first thing is to get on the same page together about what did happen. And that's one of the reasons why there are all these divisions is people are not on the same page, the same basic page about what, how we got to where we are. We're not even in agreement about the things that we don't agree on. <laughs> we, we are just, we have, we, we, we are in our own separate silos and hearing the same things from the people that we already know. And, and on top of all that, not really getting a chance to know the history. I mean, when it comes to the, the first book that I did, I mean, people didn't know the history, partly because the people who were, who had made this history, the people who were part of the Great Migration, had not, no one had really sat down with a great bulk of them to hear what their stories have been. What is it that happened? And many of them were not talking because it was too painful to talk about. They were experiencing post-traumatic stress. They didn't even tell their own children. So we're in an era now where many, many people from different walks of life, different backgrounds, and different spaces in our country are now able to give testimony about what happened to them and how things look from their vantage point. And that's how we get the full picture of whatever we're dealing with now. So we, this is really kind of just the beginning in one way. It's kind of the beginning at the start of, of being able to, you know, roll up our sleeves and, and get to work on what it will take to, to un uncover this infrastructure and to deal with this infrastructure finally. Well, thanks for giving us the blueprint, truly. Your book is incredible. I hope everyone reads it, studies it, and then returns to it again. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Isabel Wilkerson. If you haven't already, pick up a copy of her stunning and incredibly important book, Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.